Please turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text found in Mark, chapter 10, starting in verse 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God may get the glory through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the dominion forever and ever. That's my prayer, Father, that I would serve now this people in the strength that you supply so that when all is said and done, you will get the glory through Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. This message is an interlude in our exposition of the Gospel of John that's been occupying us for some time and will, Lord willing, for many months to come. It's a message on humility and servanthood and true greatness, and it is a a burden that I feel now for myself, for the staff, for this church and its many ministries, and for you. Just to give you a flavor of how much of a burden it is when the staff, pastoral staff, small group leaders, we're divided into five small groups on the pastoral staff, and we Leaders got together a few days ago and prayed through, thought through, talked through what we might focus on together in the coming year in our small groups to model for you what you might 
do, we really do believe earnestly in small groups. That's why we do them as a pastoral staff. We decided to read this book together this year. It's called Humility by C.J. Mahaney, subtitled True Greatness. So if you wonder what will the staff be thinking and praying, what will they be applying to themselves, what will their longings be and their prayers be for themselves and their wives for the next 10 months or so, it will be this or the Bible as it's contained here. And we don't have any firm expectations at all that the whole church will go this direction. Let every small group should do this. You can if you want to. This is, this is not a difficult book to get through, so just one option for you. But that's what we're going to do, and it underlines for you the seriousness, the urgency, the, the burden that I feel in this message. I'm talking about this because most fundamentally, I want to be humble. And I want this church to be known not as proud, but as, as humble, as marked by humility. As a church, we are human, we are large, we are widely known, and we are sinners. That's a very dangerous mix. It has all the ingredients that go into the recipe of pride, does it not? I know that the best and humblest man that ever lived was crucified, tortured to death under the accusation of blasphemous arrogance. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, John 5, 18. So I don't expect his followers to avoid the accusation of arrogance. If you are the humblest witness in this world, to Jesus as the only way to God, you will be accused of arrogance, no matter how humble you are. So my purpose in this message is not to avoid that. I want to avoid the reality of pride, not the accusation of pride. Accusations come. We just don't want them to land with validity on us. I want us as a people not necessarily to be known by the world as humble. They can't discern what true humility is. But God can I want God to see it. I want spiritually discerning people to see it and give glory to, to our Father in heaven. I pray that 
as we meet in these small groups, the pastors, and pray over this and apply this and get in each other's lives about this and point out evidences of pride or humility in each other, that there will be among us a kind of a contagion that will infect the church with this happy condition called humility. Let's not start, I thought, now how shall I start this? How should we do this? This is my burden. How shall I do this? And my bent is to immediately define the term. That's, I'm, I'm wired. Can't talk about something if you don't have a definition because you don't know what you're talking about. However, there's another way to get at that. I'm going to read you six passages of Scripture with just a little brief comment after each one that I think when we're done will do better at giving you a feel for what it is than if I try to craft a very finely tuned definition. So let's do six passages of Scripture. Then I'm going to apply it to Bethlehem and its implications for servanthood with each other and true greatness. Then I'm going to tackle at the end three um, objections that the world might raise as to why humility is not all cracked up, what it's cracked up to be. Okay, so here we go. Uh, Text number one, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, my point at this, at this stage is humility agrees and is glad that God gets all the credit for choosing us and calling us to himself. Humility loves to say, God chose me. I didn't choose him. God called me to himself. God wakened me from the dead. God saved me. Humility loves to talk about the grace of God. And so, verse 29, the upshot of that divine initiative is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is saving us in a way to knock all the props out from under boasting in man. And then, positively, in verse 31, but rather, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the whole history of redemption is being carried out in such a way as to sever the root of all boasting in man and to build the tree of all boasting in God. That's text number one. Number two, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. 
I have applied all these things to myself, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So the second observation is humility agrees and is glad that everything we have is a gift from God. This severs the root of boasting according to verse 7. It severs the root of, of boasting in our distinctives. Whatever talents you have, and you do, whatever intelligence you have, whatever skills, whatever gifts, whatever looks, whatever pedigree, whatever possessions, whatever wit, whatever influence you have, put away all pride because it's a gift, free gift, and put away all despair because it's a gift of God. If you think your talents, gifts, intelligence, wit, possessions are large, put away pride. If you think they're small, put away despair because they are gifts of God. Number three. James chapter 4, James chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do, fails to do it, for him it is sin. Humility agrees and is glad that every beat of my heart is a gift of God, governed by God, and will only keep beating as long as God chooses it. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live the rest of this service, or not. If the Lord wills, we will go to Chicago this week, or not. If the Lord wills, we'll get in our car and head home and get there, or not. And He will decide. Humility loves to say that. Humility does not want to be in charge. 
Humility says, God reigns. My heart beat, my brain waves, my car and that car are under his sovereign control. I would not have it otherwise. I am not God. That's the way humility talks. But we say in our arrogance, I am going to such and such a town to do business and get gain. No. We don't want to talk like that. Number four, Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Now the implication of those verses is the humble willingness to forgive an offense is rooted in being forgiven by Jesus. In other words, I'm only talking in this sermon about gospel humility. I'm not talking about any other kind. I don't care about any other kind of humility. The only kind of humility I'm talking about is gospel-rooted humility. Cross-rooted humility. Christ-causing, Christ-exalting humility. I'm not interested in any other personality-type kind. This is, this is humility that pleases God, honors Christ, and carries the day. It's rooted in being forgiven. Knowing yourself a sinner in need of a Savior. Knowing yourself utterly dependent on Christ for all acceptance with God. Thus being broken by the cross, healed by the cross, and able to pour yourself out for others in a new way, namely as a humble person. Number five, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. I'm sure you knew I had to go here. This may be the most glorious of all texts in combining humility and servanthood, but there are so many, maybe not. Philippians chapter 2, Verse 3, do nothing, Bethlehem, from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself or made himself nothing, taking the form of a, say the word. That's what sort of, that's, that's the behavioral form I'm after. But that's secondary. It's, it's the inside thing I'm really after. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, now say that word. So now you've got the two words. Servant and humbled. Servant and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the point here is humility serves. 
If you ask, what does it look like horizontally? What does it look like? I can't see your heart. I don't know what your heart is. What does it look like? It looks like getting down low and lifting others up, getting under and lifting up. Not like, I'm, I'm, I've got an office. I'm the pastor. I'm the husband. I'm the boss. I'm, the, I'm, I'm always lording it. That's not what it looks like. Leaders get down under and put their shoulder to the task that they've given to others. You know what made Jesus so mad? He said, you load men with burdens hard to bear and you don't lift one finger. That's what he said to the lawyers. That's not servanthood. The Son of Man came. If you know this verse, say it with me. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why Kenny prayed the way he prayed at the beginning. Beware of serving Jesus. <laughs> he didn't come to be served. He came to serve us. We need a servant who dies for us, who sustains us. God serves you every day of your life with heartbeats and breath and food, and rising sun, and rain, and the Holy Spirit to enable you to do what you need to do, and lavish forgiveness. You are being served all day long, every day, by one from whom you deserve nothing. My, oh my, how it should affect us. How it should affect us to be servants. Humility measures everything not by how will it stroke my ego or enhance my reputation, but how will it serve the good of others. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Conceit, meaning I'm choosing everything I do to promote me, to get me in the best light. And he says, don't, don't do that. Count others better, meaning serve them. Number six, the last one. Mark chapter 10. We've read this in part. Let me just read 42 to 44. Mark 10. Jesus called to him and called them to him and said, You know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And now we've got this issue of greatness. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So, humility agrees that the fifth text, humility serves, is true greatness. That's the last point. Humility loves to think in terms of what true greatness is, namely humility and, and servanthood. Verse 43 Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. We live in an upside-down kingdom. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Slave was as low as it gets. Summary. Number one, humility is glad that God gets the credit for choosing us so that we boast only in Him and not in ourselves. Number two, Humility happily admits that everything we have is a free gift from God, so we can't boast in it, no matter how distinctive it is. 
Number three, humility is glad to affirm that God sovereignly governs the heartbeats of our life and all of our safe arrivals or non-arrivals. Number four, the root of Christian humility is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. That's how sinful we were, and that's how dependent we are on grace. Number five, humility gives itself away in serving one, every, everyone rather than seeking to be served. And sixth, humility is glad to affirm that this service is true greatness. In other words, if humility took root and, and grew at Bethlehem, we would be an amazingly serving church. You'd walk around and, and you'd be going out of yourself continually. You would be set free from needing to pose and posture yourself so that everybody's thinking a certain way about you. You, would, you just wouldn't be there. <laughs> that root would be severed. You'd be going out. You'd be going out. You'd just be, how can I serve you? How can I be there for you? Not how can I posture myself so that you're thinking nice thoughts about me? Believe me, you're going to fight that till you're dead. I'm 63. This should be over. I think I'm a teenager sometimes. Pimples. I hated pimples. I'm getting away from my manuscript here. I get back. I tried to straighten my hair as a kid. I was so vain. It's unbelievable. Why does that stuff keep cropping up? Like, Join me, us, in the battle to kill this thing. We serve. If, if God came in new power, fresh power, crucifying power, and we were really humble, it would be mainly visible in terms of how quickly we went out to each other in service. That's what the main look would be. Well... In a church of 4,500 folks or so, um, the need for servanthood in nursery and Sunday school. In fact, I wrote a list. Where is my list? You're going to receive in two weeks, I think, a, a fall ministry booklet, which is page after page of opportunity to serve. And... Small group leaders, God, help us. We want so much to nurture each other in small groups. Raise up the leaders for those two training times. Life coaches for kids. Say Yes Center for Ministering to Inner City Kids. The Bookstore Volunteers. Ushers in all campuses. Media Ministries. Tuesday Night Evangelism. All Nations ESL and Somali Literacy Training. Parking Lot Helpers and Greeting Ministries. The Library. Women's Ministries. Especially Older Women for Mentors for Younger Women. The Info Booth. The Kiosk. The Personnel. The Welcoming Ministries. Worship and Music Ministries. Disability Ministries. Nursery a horde of volunteers needed for these children of ours. Whenever you see 777, it means we need somebody's help downstairs. Um, family life ministries, young adults, that is high school, Wednesday night, Sunday school, K through 8, Sunday night, high school. The needs right now as we move into the fall are, are huge. It's, it's like being a church of 200 and needing five people. 
only you have to multiply that by 20. And you need 100 people in that ministry. Nobody thinks it's hard to get five people in a church of 200 to do nursery. But to get a couple hundred, then that's a little, a little more difficult. Don't, don't have the mindset. So many people have the mindset, um, big churches are so slick. I mean, look at the music, and they're just slick. You know, everything kind of goes the way it should. It doesn't feel like a family. It just feels like a, boy, this is slick. <laughs> and so you think, well, everything's covered because they do everything slick here. Well, <laughs> we don't have everything covered. And every soul has a gift. Every soul, every Christian is called to use the gift. How important is humility? Listen to John Calvin. This is an amazing quote. I want to read this quote from Calvin. He's really quoting two of his heroes. So you don't hear Calvin's voice directly. You hear theirs. But he's quoting it because he agrees with them. And as long as I'm mentioning Calvin, I I do want to wave the banner for the... uh, with Calvin in the Theater of God National Conference of Desiring God in four weeks or so at the Minneapolis Convention Center that I am so excited about. So do go to my star article and see why I would like you to come. I just think it's good for local churches to have lots of people united around a theme so that we have a mindset about lots of things together. But here's the quote from from Calvin. I have always been exceedingly delighted with the words of Chrysostom. Quote, the foundation of our philosophy is humility. And more with the words of Augustine, quote, as the orator, when asked what is the first precept in eloquence, answered delivery. What is the second? Delivery. What is the third? Delivery. So if you ask me in regard to the precepts of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. Now my question to that quote is, why does John Calvin, Augustine, Chrysostom say first, second, and third, humility? Like first maybe, but then a few other things. Why do they keep keep laying it like fourth, fifth, sixth? I think they could say that. And here's the reason, I think. The reason is because humility is the soil in which everything good in the Christian life grows. And if that soil goes away, everything good withers. It's unique in that regard. I'm going to give you some illustrations. Four. Faith. Would anyone depend on Christ as a needy, weak, and sinful person if God hadn't given them humility. Second, worship. Would anyone earnestly make much of the worth of God instead of craving to be made much of himself if God hadn't given them humility? Third, obedience. Would anyone surrender his autonomy and submit obediently to the absolute authority of Scripture if God hadn't given them humility. Fourth, love. Would anyone seek 
the good of others at cost to himself if God hadn't created in his heart humility. And on and on and on we could go. So it's first humility, second humility, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, because under everything, everything good that we want to flourish and grow in the Christian life or in the church grows in this soil. And where this soil is ruined, things wither. In closing, I want to just give you a taste. These are sort of personal, I suppose. I could choose so many examples. I want to give you a taste of what the humble life feels like as we close with three objections that the world would raise, perhaps. At least I I know that from time to time these have been raised. Whether people you know would raise them, I, I don't know. But they give me a chance to illumine what the what the what the humble life looks like. Objection number one. Humility makes a person gloomy, dismal, downcast, unhappy. My answer, no. Gospel humility frees you from the need to pose, calculate, posture, Sniff out what others think so that you're free to laugh at what is really funny with the biggest belly laugh imaginable that makes your face contort and look ridiculous. (laughs) I grew up in a home... And I am so thankful. Both my parents are with Jesus. I sat at the table. My grandmother sat here. My sister sat over there. Mommy sat there. Daddy sat there. That's what I called them till the day they died. And Daddy would come home with his, with his jokes from his evangelistic crusades. We would hear stories of triumph of the grace with tears running down his eyes of how an alcoholic was converted on the last night of the meeting. And mingled in there, he would tell me jokes that he heard. And my father laughed, heart, laughed hardest at his own jokes than anybody else did. And it worked to draw you in with amazing effectiveness. I remember sitting at dinner tables with my father here. He was, he was portly. He always described himself as toothpicks and a watermelon. <laughs> and so when he laughed, <laughs> it was like Santa Claus, you know. And my mother at the other end would, would begin with a, a, a loud soprano. <laughs> and then it would just break over and both of them would have tears running on their face uncontrollably laughing and my sister and I were drawn into this glory there weren't any humbler moments in the world because they had totally lost control (laughs) no calculations whatsoever how am I being perceived (laughs) this is a freedom this is a freedom that can only come to the humble. Proud people don't get red in the face and fall off their chairs with contortions of laughter. They go, 
<laughs> I'm totally in control here. I'm in control here. Because they will maintain their dignity. Well, when the father saw the son coming, he pulled up his robes between his legs and he ran. An old man ran. I disagree with the objection that being humble makes you gloomy. I think it frees you to be the happiest person you could possibly be. Number two, second objection. Humility makes you fearful and timid. Humility makes you fearful and timid. No. The world thinks that because the best source of courage that they can think of is self-confidence. It's the only source of courage they can think of. If you destroy my self-confidence, by telling me I'm a sinner, I'm weak, I'm dependent, you cut my ability to be bold and courageous and aggressive and strong. And it's because they can't imagine another source of courage. There is a better source. God-confidence. Not self-confidence, God-confidence. You want to be strong and bold? Be nothing and have God on your side. I don't agree with the objection that the only or best source of boldness is self-confidence. Listen to Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 15.10. I'm sorry, that's coming in, in number three. Isaiah 51, 12. Isaiah 51, 12. This is God talking. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and have forgotten the Lord your maker? is that an amazing sentence? Who do you think you are to be afraid? When we're afraid, we don't usually expect accusations of pride. Who do you think you are to fear man? And have forgotten the Lord, your maker. Man, if I am on your side, just humble yourself. I'm looking at you. I look to people that tremble at my word. And when I look to you, they die if necessary. Or they get converted if necessary. No, 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 no. Taking away pride and self-preoccupation, self-confidence and self-exaltation, taking all that away does not take courage away. Not if you replace it with God, His promises, His grace. Finally, number three. Objection three. Humility makes you passive and removes the driving motor of achievement in America the most achieving nation on the planet you, you, you spread this message of humility 
lowliness, dependence, meekness. You're gonna you're gonna ruin this economy. No. The world thinks that because for them the driving motor of achievement is feeding the ego with accomplishments. That's what it feels like. I mean, you take that away, what have I got left? I'm feeding my ego by achieving something. I'm going to climb this ladder. I'm going to make this bundle. I'm going to buy that house. I'm going to have that retirement. I'm going to drive that car. I'm going to wear that ring. And people will know I made it. We take that away. What are you going to put in its place? I mean, that's driving the motor of this economy. What, what you take that away? What are you going to put in its place? 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And I worked. This is the Apostle Paul talking. While he had breath, he labored. I worked harder than any of them. He stayed up till who knows what hour making a tent so that he wouldn't have to charge his churches. I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but grace that was with me. The power of God's grace in the heart of the humble believer who depends utterly on God produces incredible industry. I'll say it again. The grace of God, the power of His grace in the heart of a humble believer who depends utterly on God produces in him incredible energy and industry. Listen to this one, Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. The world doesn't know what this is. The world doesn't know. The legacy of John Calvin in the Western world is one of absolute dependence on sovereign grace. And because of that, the unleashing of a tidal wave of industry that produced the world, you see. It's called the Protestant work ethic. It was culture-shaping it was profoundly meaningful. It was labor to the max for the glory of God. You call it a paradox. Call it a paradox if you wish. But it's biblical and it's historical. Deep, humble dependence on God, sovereign grace, has produced world-changing achievements. Here's one more verse on this, and then I'll, I'll close. This verse, I want to mark my life till I drop. 
Colossians 1.28. For this, namely presenting everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all the energy that He powerfully works within me. You take away the quest for ego satisfaction and you put a person totally like a child dependent on sovereign, omnipotent grace. I'll tell you what happens. Toil happens. Industry happens. Creativity happens. Energy happens. The unleashing of dreams happens. And now I end where I begin. We're a a church of humans. We're a large church. We're a well-known church. And we're sinners. So that that wonderful image that I just spoke only imperfectly takes root in us. And we fight this thing till the day we're dead. So the answer is no to these objections. Gospel humility, grace-based humility, Christ-exalting humility doesn't make you gloomy, doesn't make you timid, and doesn't make you passive. It makes you joyful, courageous, and industrious. Yes, it does. If you're not a joyful person, you've got a problem with not having enough humility. If you're a, a lazy person, you don't have enough humility. And if you're a timid person, you don't have enough humility. It makes us instead servants like Jesus. Only God can create this in our church, in me and and the pastoral staff. Only God can do this. I can't, I can preach this sermon by God's grace, but if He doesn't come to you, And me, it won't happen. We'll go out and brag about the sermon. (laughs) Or brag about the church. Or brag about the music. Or brag about the TBI. Or what what do we call it now? BCS. (laughs) Going to brag, brag, brag. And talk, talk, talk about all the wrong things. That's what we'll do if God doesn't work. The gospel is the root. Jesus crucified and risen is the root. And my prayer is that he would work this in us and it would unleash a tidal wave of, of service in our church and in, in the world. Let's pray. Father, have mercy upon us. And I mean us, me, first. Pray for forgiveness, for pride. Cleanse us. Put the axe to the root of arrogance. Self-exaltation. Seeking of human praise. Delight in acclamation. Craving approval, boasting in our strengths, 
or fearful that we don't have any. All is pride. Come, Holy Spirit, and bear the fruit of humility and meekness and love and joy in our lives. And let there be unleashed at Bethlehem service of each other. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.